Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring, thought-provoking dialogue. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. James Jett today. Jim's extensive career spans more than four decades as a leader in the field of pulmonology. Jim was Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, for almost 30 years before joining the National Jewish in Denver, Colorado in 2010 as Professor of Medicine. He was editor-in-chief of the Journal of Thoracic Oncology for almost 10 years and additionally has served in journal review and editorial activities for numerous medical publications, including the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Cancer, Chess, and even the New England Journal of Medicine. With a slew of academic honours, Jim's research has focused on screening, diagnosis, and the treatment of lung cancer. In fact, Jim was part of the research team that discovered how CT screening can be an effective tool to detect lung cancer early in high-risk patients. I was fortunate enough to work with Jim when he was on Commune's chief medical officer before he joined Biodesics as their chief medical officer in 2019, where he continues to support work in lung cancer. Joining us from the beautiful Napa Valley in Northern California, Jim, I'm honoured to welcome you to Extra Time. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for the nice introduction. Pleasure to have you here, Jim. Jim, you've worked in the field of pulmonology for over 40 years and much has changed in that time. But sadly, lung cancer still remains the biggest cancer killer today. And over 80% of cases are still diagnosed too late when the cancer has spread to other parts of the body. Despite these poor statistics, there has been many, many advances in the field. Can you walk us through some of those advances and, and give us a sense of your optimism for the future? Well, uh, Adam, uh, you're right in that lung cancer has been uh, a major killer. It's the number one cancer killer in the United States in both men and women. Now, but there are some good news. Uh, the recent uh, American Cancer Society statistics just came out this week. Uh, and basically, uh, cancer deaths in the US have dropped by about 31% since 1991. Hmm. And wow. specifically, lung cancer deaths have been dropping um, about 2 to 3% per year since 1991, and it's uh, actually ramped up to about three to 4% in the last couple of years. So uh, while it is still the number one cancer killer, there are some good things going on. And that gets us to why, why is it improving? Well, first of all, tobacco control has been a major influence in the whole field of cutting down on lung cancer mortality. Mm -hmm. But, um, Screening has changed. Uh, the low-dose CT screening, uh, was, um, the landmark study was published in 2011. That's the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial um, that showed that it was effective. And then um, uh, in the U.S., uh, that has been recommended as standard, although the uptick uh, use of it has been relatively modest. We can talk about that later. 
but it's approved. And then uh, the Nelson trial in Europe just came out this past year, mm -hmm. confirming uh, in, in Europe uh, that uh, low-dose CT screening in high-risk individuals decreases lung cancer mortality. So I would say that is a huge, one of the biggest change. Um, tobacco control, screening for lung cancer. The other thing uh, is that a lot of CT scans are done for diagnostic purposes. And so many small nodules are detected. Uh, about 5% of them are cancer. Most of them are not cancer, but that gives us an opportunity to evaluate earlier cancers. Uh, the PET scan uh, for diagnostic purposes sort of became commonplace in about 2000. And then bronchoscopy with EBUS, endobronchial ultrasound, um, has come on um, oh, maybe since about 2005 to 2010. So it's a, a, a diagnostic and staging tool. Um, VAT surgery, minimal invasive video assisted thoracic surgery has ramped up. Uh, so surgery is not as uh, hard on individuals, does not have as high a mortality rate uh, uh, complications. And then especially in the last uh, five to uh, 10 years, many new therapeutic uh, uh, drugs have come along. The targeted therapies for EGFR and ALK uh, and other uh, sensitizing mutations. And then the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors have uh, escalated. So the current treatment of different stages and cell types of lung cancers has changed dramatically over the last few years. And I think, uh, so screening, uh, prevention, and all these new treatments have contributed to this yearly decrease in lung cancer mortality that we're seeing in, in the United States and other, and other countries. Oh, wow. I mean, there has been a huge amount achieved over a, a relatively short period of time. And, and I... I, I've uh, um, uh, not not heard the statistics that you've shared, but it's remarkable that there's been so much progress and heartening, quite frankly, with um, uh, in in such a such an intractable and, and difficult disease to treat. I've always been particularly interested in earlier detection, um, but healthcare systems have often been slow at adopting earlier detection approaches. Um, what do you think has changed in attitudes um, to early detection of lung cancer over the last 40 years, or maybe even the last 10 years that, that has seen it have such an impact upon the statistics you've just shared? Well, I, th I think everyone in all healthcare systems are aware of the bad statistics related to uh, late stage lung cancer. And symptomatic lung cancer is not early stage. It's usually a stage three or stage four at least. So the idea uh, is uh, to pick it up early. While mammography and colonoscopy have, uh, have changed uh, uh, breast cancer mortality and everything, lung cancer has been a little slower to come along. But I think with the accumulated evidence on low-dose CT screening, that uh, a number of systems have started to adopt that for high-risk individuals. Now, the, the tricky part is getting um, high-risk individuals to accept uh, the right. low-dose CT right. screening. Um, Mostly, uh, a lot of those folks don't get into the healthcare system. They are, uh, in general, the, the current smoker in this day and age is uh, a, a little less, uh, a little less educated, and um, a little bit uh, less likely to seek medical care and attention. So, uh, consequently, they're a little likely, uh, less likely to get screened. 
but I think we have to keep pushing uh, for early detection, CT screening and evaluation. As you've alluded to, the problem um, of uh, encouraging people to access screening when offered it is a real challenge. Maybe as little as 4 to 5% of patients in some healthcare systems um, responding to a letter as it drops through their post and, and turning up for a low-dose CT to detect lung cancer early. And I guess that might have been impacted further by the current pandemic that we're experiencing. What role do you think there is for other approaches to diagnosis of early lung cancer that might be more acceptable for or easier to engage with with those hard to reach populations you've described? Well, I think in general, uh, patients would be more comfortable with a, uh, a blood test. So if we had a good uh, blood test for uh, early detection, that would be ideal, uh, our blood test for screening. Now, one such study was the Scottish Lung Cancer Screening Study, where they used early CDT blood test, and they demonstrated a 36% reduction in the number of patients presenting with advanced stage lung cancer uh, after just two years uh, of follow-up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of uh, interest recently in a number of uh, several companies in the U.S. looking at um, circulating uh, cell-free DNA. Uh, the so-called GRAIL group, uh, looking at a detector of multiple different cancers. Um, another test called Thrive. It was developed by Hopkins uh, University called Cancer Seek. Yep. So there's a lot of interest in that. Those are not exactly ready for prime time right now, but we're seeing early scientific publications along that line. And I think it's conceivable that, you know, a, a blood test is going to uh, shift things tremendously with uh, maybe within as soon as the next five years. And early CDT, of course, is here already. I know they're doing expanded studies on that in Scotland to uh, look at it on a uh, population basis to see if it proves to be as useful as it was in the controlled trial that they published. Of course, you know, one of the challenges that you create if you look harder for disease is whilst picking up more disease that is treatable and therefore leads to improved outcomes, you also identify other things. Um, And in the case of looking hard for lung cancer, you often find nodules in patients. And the challenge often in that population, as you know better than most, Jim, is, is, is which one of these nodules is benign and unlikely to cause any issues for the patient and, and which is going to go on to develop into, into, into cancer. Um, what, are, what, are the, what are the challenges of managing this, this burgeoning indeterminate pulmonary nodule population that you'll see in, in the US and elsewhere? Well, as you say, the uh, nodules are very common, picked up either in CT screening or in incidental CT scans. You know, if you go to the emergency room with uh, chest pain in this day and age, uh, likely to get a CT scan to rule out a pulmonary embolus uh, Mm -hmm. uh, type of thing. So a lot of nodules are found. And then uh, the question is, what do you do with them? Well, there are nodule guidelines. There are quite a few different nodule guidelines. There's the American College of Chest Physicians. There's the British Thoracic Society guidelines. There's the National Comprehensive Cancer Institute guidelines. There's the Fleschner guidelines. And they all vary a little bit. Um, But in general, you know, I I think as a pulmonologist, I sort of promote either you follow the ACCP 
uh, guidelines or you follow the BTS guidelines, which mm -hmm. are pretty similar. They have a little bit different cutoffs for what's high risk and low risk. Mm -hmm. And then the physician basically has to estimate the risk of malignancy in that nodule. You know, if you have a 30 year old never smoker who has a nodule, the risk of that being cancer is, you know, uh, certainly um, less than 5%, probably less than 1%, but it's very, very low risk. And so you don't have to go into uh, a lot of uh, uh, diagnostic tests. On the other hand, you know, if you have a nodule in a 70-year-old uh, male or female who's smoked uh, for 20 or 30 or 40 years, you're in a higher risk category. So the guidelines sort of help decide which, uh, which way you go from there. The problem is, is that not all physicians follow the guidelines very carefully. And so there's a lot of variation. If you had a blood test to help you decide what it's more likely to be malignant or more likely to be benign, that could help in uh, pushing your evaluation to be more aggressive, to do bronchoscopy or transthoracic needle biopsy, perhaps if it's high risk. If they're in a low risk category, uh, maybe uh, less than five or 10% risk of malignancy, you're a lot more comfortable just following with serial CT scans. So. Blood biomarkers um, can help uh, move them into different categories. Again, there's no perfect biomarker, but there are biomarkers of high risk, such as the early CDT lung. There's a biomarker um, uh, called uh, Notify XL2 uh, in the US, uh, uh, which moves a lot of nodules into the likely benign category where their risk is less than 5%. So that's where biomarkers can be a potential help uh, in diagnostic evaluation. Now, Jim, it's rare to have a conversation nowadays without touching upon the current pandemic that has, has us all in lockdown. Um, I'm here in London and, and, and you, you in California, and we're both suffering, I think, a similar form of lockdown at the, um, at the moment, California and the UK having been particularly hard hit. Uh, can, can you tell me what impact you think COVID has had upon the healthcare system in in the US and indeed what impact might it have upon the early detection of cancer in the US also? Well, I think especially when the first lockdowns came uh, in March and April, everything just shut down. Doctors' mm. offices shut down, screening shut down, evaluation of nodules shut down, elective surgery shut down. Now, uh, as things eased up through the summer, uh, institutions have started doing more testing and more evaluation. And then there have been certainly some reports already about people uh, presenting with more advanced cancer, uh, stage cancer, because uh, they didn't have uh, evaluation sooner. So I think a lot of institutions are doing more testing now. There are a lot more telehealth is going on at this point mm -hmm. in time. Um, but it sort of depends on where you are. You know, if you're in part of the U.S. where they're in um, very high uh, mode, like in L.A. or uh, perhaps Phoenix in Arizona, uh, where um, uh, things are going at a very high risk, then probably not much elective is going on. It's mostly just uh, keeping your hospital, unfortunately, full with COVID patients. So other things uh, uh, don't get evaluated. So I think that's the risk is the more we put it off, uh, the more likely that we're gonna lose some of that decreasing mortality that we have uh, seen from lung cancer over the last uh, 20, 30 years, because people are gonna come in later, gonna be evaluated later. Um, and we've also seen a few reports on that already. 
I think um, we will see more in the near future. On this side of the pond, Jim, um, there's been a tremendous amount of negative press about the COVID pandemic and its handling over the last 12 months. I, I'm sure it's not too dissimilar in, in, in the US, but I, I, what have you seen that's positive to have come out um, of this crisis? What, what silver linings have there been to this, this cloud? Well, I think the silver lining has been the tremendous boom in uh, research and knowledge, uh, yes, um, yeah. especially in um, vaccine development, um, uh, the rapid development uh, of available vaccines already from several companies uh, um, uh, in the UK and in the US. So that's amazing that vaccines uh, from start to finish are ready within a one year time period. That's never yeah, happened yeah. in my professional lifetime. Mm. Um, so uh, that's one thing. The other thing, there's a lot of uh, research going on with new therapeutics, uh, the monoclonal antibodies uh, for uh, acute treatment. A couple of them have been approved. I was on a website uh, called the Millikan Institute that tracks all kinds of uh, clinical trials and uh, vaccine development. It's over 300 drugs that are in various phases of development uh, for uh, for COVID and over 200 vaccines in various phases of development. Now, some of these are very early stage and may never may never get to the clinic, but some of them are gonna to get to the clinic. So again, a tremendous boom in the science of treatment and vaccines. There's also been huge changes already in diagnostics uh, uh, for COVID type of thing. So I think uh, we'll come out of this with a lot of knowledge um, and we're going to be better prepared uh, for, um, uh, God forbid, for the next uh, pandemic, uh, if that does happen. And it will eventually happen. I don't know how many years down the road, but uh, we're likely to have another one, I think. We didn't anticipate this one, and I can't anticipate when the next one will be, but uh, <laughs> I think it will happen. Yeah, undoubtedly. Well, it sounds like there's a huge amount to be optimistic about, and what a great time to be involved in the field. Um, Jim, finally, if, if you could pick three people to sit in your seat now, um, who might they be, and, um, and what question might you like to ask them? Yeah, just uh, Adam, one follow up to the last question, though, is I'm a big proponent of vaccines and I'm I'm in line to get mine uh, type of thing. So I'm going to be there. I have absolutely no reservations uh, about it. Uh, you know, I, we know there are a lot of people that die from the disease so far. Nobody, <laughs> nobody has had a terrible reaction and died from uh, the vaccination. There's been a few uh, acute reactions, but uh, no deaths. So I'm I'm in line for the vaccine. Here, here, and um, and I hope you get your vaccine soon. <laughs> Give me your three people. Who's going to sit in your seat, and what questions do you want to ask them? Yeah, well, I suspect that you may not know these three people, but uh, we'll Try see. Me. Well, the first person I would like to interview is Miss uh, Stacy Abrams. Uh, she's an African American politician uh, in the state of Georgia in the U.S. So, for those of you who don't know where Georgia is, uh, you may know where the city of Atlanta is, and Atlanta yes. is in the so that's the south of the U.S., and that's been a very conservative uh, Republican area. There have been a lot of voter suppression for African-Americans. She has basically changed things in that state so that in this general election, they elected Joe Biden, a Democrat, for the president. They elected two Democratic senators, mainly by enriching the polls of people who could vote because they had a lot of laws there that uh, suppressed voters. So 
she's one of my heroes uh, type of thing. She's very dynamic, a lady in her late 40s, and I wouldn't be surprised that we're uh, going to see great things of her in the future um, uh, on the national stage. My number two person would be uh, an author by the name of Ron Chernow. And Ron Chernow wrote the biography called Hamilton. Oh, <laughs> yes. The play is he, uh, he also wrote a biography on uh, a U.S. president called uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was a famous general in our American Civil War. And then he also wrote another one on John D. Rockefeller, who was the founder of Standard Oil. I'm reading that biography right now. So uh, the amount of work he puts into these biographies is phenomenal. Hmm. And I don't know how he keeps track of all the details <laughs> Uh, that he references uh, in the back of the book. So I am enthralled uh, with his um, method of, of researching things, the detail, and how he keeps track of it all. Having written papers and used a lot of references, I, I know that's a difficult task at times. <laughs> and then my third one is uh, a, a doctor by the name of Atul Gawande. And uh, Dr. Gawande is a surgeon and lecturer and a healthcare researcher uh, based out of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And he recently was named the CEO of uh, something called Haven Health. Haven Health uh, was put together by uh, three big companies called Amazon, uh, JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway. And the goal was to um, change the health, try to improve the healthcare system, which is, as you, you know, very fragmented in the U.S. It's a great healthcare system if you have insurance, um, but it's not so great if you, if you don't have insurance and uh, uh, you can get care, but maybe not uh, of the same quality or the same speed. The problem is this system, uh, with all of this money behind it, uh, basically fell apart. And uh, Tul Gawande resigned as CEO last summer. And so my questions to him was, well, what were the problems? Why, why couldn't you help solve? Uh, why couldn't this solve, uh, problem be solved uh, in, the, in the U.S.? So, um, again, uh, I've heard him lecture on TED Talks and everything, and he's a very impressive man. And some of the studies that he's done for analyzing healthcare systems have been very impressive. Um, so those are kind of my immediate three heroes. They, they may change next month, but uh, those are my top <laughs> three. Fantastic, fantastic choices. I have actually had the pleasure of, um, of sharing a stage with um, Dr. Gawande um, many years ago when we were both due to talk to a G8 summit about patient safety. And uh, both chose the, the, the race team and the pit stop team as, um, as an analogy to get people thinking about how to best deliver patient safety in hospitals. So he's a chap I have uh, had the pleasure of meeting in the past. You can research him on YouTube and find some of it, our TED Talks and find uh, some of his lectures there. He's, in, he's very impressive. I'll give it a look. I'll give it a look. Jim, you've been an absolute gentleman. It's been an education talking to you for the last 20 minutes. And it's been a great privilege having the opportunity to work with you um, also over the last couple of years. Many thanks for joining us. And, uh, and we look forward to following your career as it continues to progress. Oh, thank you very much, Adam. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed my time of working with, uh, uh, with Ancommune and with uh, you and your colleagues in, in the UK. And 
I'm uh, very interested in getting back to the UK, but uh, only after the vaccinations have hit. <laughs> you're welcome with open arms. As soon as you're vaccinated, we'll have you back. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jim. Take care.